Welcome to Passion. For more information about Passion, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. So I wore my plaid shirt to kind of fit in with the uh, the According to Jim series we're in, and I hope you've been, uh, enjoyed that last week and that you've been chewing on it. I've been chewing on it all week, been posting it on Facebook as my status, and people are responding. Uh, they can't figure out who Jim is. I, don't, I thought it was kind of obvious, but they're asking me. I've got people private message. Who's Jim? Well, Jim is James, and so uh, we're going to go back into James this morning, and we're going to talk about some practical advice for practical living. I said this last week. Let me repeat it. I believe that uh, Jim's writings in the New Testament are in the New Testament are some of the most practical, uh, but they are also some of the most unlived portions of Scripture. It's extremely practical, but we just kind of gloss right over it and fail to apply it to our lives. And so, what I want us to do is I want us to go back and and really dig into. Uh, the chapters, and so what we're doing is we're taking a chapter a week for over the course of five weeks and dealing with the the writings that uh, James gives us as a uh, a way of living practically. And there's some really dicey ones this morning, and so you're just going to have to buckle your seatbelts and hang on. I'm going to make some statements that when you first hear them, you're going to go, well, I don't know about that, and then I'll have to explain my uh, perspective on those and maybe clarify for you. Let's start in Jim chapter two. Verse 1 through 9, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they the ones are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, listen to this phrase right here, you sin. That's a different concept that I'm going to talk about right there. If you show favoritism, you sin and you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The Message Bible says, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole passage in the message, just one little sentence that, or two sentences that uh, translates interestingly. He says like this, he, being God, chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. The kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. So according to Jim, there can be no class system for people in the church. See, there's no room for judging people according to skin color. 
There's no room to judge people according to social status. There is even, now this is going to blow some of you away. Just hang on. I'm going to explain. This one's going to make you uncomfortable for just a second. There is even no room for judging people and showing favoritism against people according to their sexual orientation. Now, don't freak out. Go back to the house messages that we spoke about, and we talked about authority figures, so you ought to know exactly where we stand on the subject and the topic of sexual orientation because God's Word trumps all other, all other laws, all other rules, so we know explicitly where God stands on that issue. However, what he is saying is we cannot be prejudiced against the sinners. We can be in judgment against the sin, and we're going to talk about that, but we cannot show favoritism. I'm preaching real good, and y'all still trying to figure it out. There is no room for judging based on economic condition. There is no room for prejudice in the church in any form, in any shape, or any color. No room. We should be the most unprejudiced people on the planet. We ought to be able to rub elbows and hang out with any class, any color, any kind, any form of person because the Bible says at the moment you show favoritism, you sin. Now, this whole concept of prejudice is not a new thing, by the way. From the very beginning of the existence of church, there has been this tendency to want to draw lines of separation. In the early church, they would put the Jews over here and the Gentiles over there. And they would put the men over here and the women over there. And they would separate and draw lines of segregation and isolate people. And so that is not a new thing, but the reality is, is that they started it and we have perfected it favoritism so now there are white churches over here and black churches over there and there are hispanic churches over here and there are seeker churches over here and then there are deep churches over here and we continue to sin and draw lines of favoritism and isolate people and segregate people and divide people and jim according to jim he says that is absolutely a sin one man said it like this. He said, the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning during church. Jim says that's a sin. And at the moment that we begin to show favoritism based on any criteria, rich, poor, white, black, happy, unhappy, apartment dwellers, house dwellers, penthouse, outhouse. At the moment we do that, we become lawbreakers and what we do is we pass it off as our comfort zone and our preference when in reality according to Jim it is not about our pre preference and it's not even about our comfort zone it's about our sin nature that divides us and separates us and there is no way to justify being in an all white church being in an all black church being an all saved church an all sinner church there is no way to justify that See, we've forgotten one of the most profound and closest truth to God's heart that we should have learned as children. And it's this. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. 
Jesus died on the cross. Some people, you say you don't need the church anymore. I beg to differ. Jesus died for the church. Jesus died on the cross for a unified church, for a bound church in love to where we love one another, not based on the fact that you drive the same quality of car that I drive or that you live in the same quality of house and in the same neighborhood that I live in or that you dress like me or that you smell like me or that you look like me. He just died so that we would all love one another. Period. And we separate. We all stand equal in the eyes of God. So get your nose down. Accept people from all walks of life. Sit next to people who are not like you. Speak to folks who are not like you. Quit sitting in comfortable cl cliques and, and only hanging out with people that are just like me. God has called us to be open to everyone. In his autobiography, Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he read the gospel seriously. He considered strongly becoming a Christian. He read the Gospels and they convicted him and he began to think, I should become a Christian. And he believed that in the teachings of Jesus he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. And so one Sunday he got out of bed and he went to a local church and he, he had made up his mind, I'm going to go to this church and I'm going to get an audience with the pastor and I'm going to speak to the pastor and I'm going to give my heart to Christ and I'm going to become his follower and I'm going to become a Christian. And when he showed up at the door, the usher stopped him and said to him, you cannot come in here. You need to go worship with your own kind. And he writes this statement. He says, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And that's what he did. I'm wondering how many people come to our churches, not just this church, because I declare to you that we are open. I, I love looking around the room and, and having church with folks that don't look like me. I, I, I love the fact that we can come to church and we have all of the colors represented. We, we, we look like a, a, a rainbow. I kind of like that. I like that on any given Sunday. When you look at our worship team, there is every complexion. There is every status of life. There's every economic condition represented on our stage and on our platform. And we do that on purpose because that's who we are as a body. And I love that fact. That is more like heaven than you'll ever experience in most churches. And I love that fact, but I want to declare to you that we cannot become closed because although there are black folks sitting in here and brown folks sitting in here and wh lily white, Casper white like me, I declare to you that even with all of that being true, if we are not careful, we can close down and we can say, well, if a bum walks in off the street, it doesn't matter what can do. He stinks. He reeks of alcohol. We can't, we can't hang. No. We have to remain open. What happens if somebody walks into this building that has a different sexual orientation? I don't want them in the same. No, we have to embrace them and love them. We don't embrace their sin, but we embrace them. And we love them in the relationship and we love them in the change. We don't hang out with people just like us. Jim says there can be no class system for people in the church. He goes on and he says this and. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, 
That's, that's an overwhelming thought there. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. In the Message Bible, listen to this, I love this. You can't pick and choose in these things. Specializing in keeping one or two things in God's law and ignoring others. The same God who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you don't commit adultery, but go ahead and murder, do you think your non-adultery will cancel out your murder? No, you're a murderer, period. That's what the Message Bible says. See, according to Jim, not only can there not be a class system for people in the church, according to Jim, there can be no class system for sin in our lives. See, we've created a class system not only for people, we create a class system for sin. We try to justify our sin by excusing ourselves because we have not committed sin in another area. We keep score. I, I did this, but I didn't do that, and that would have been worse. That's a class system for sin. And sin, here's a profound statement. Write this one down. This is going to blow your mind. Sin is sin. <laughs> That's profound, isn't it? But we create these class systems. Now, I understand that sin, at least in the natural way of looking at them, things, sin may have various levels of impact in the natural. For, for instance, uh, some sins in the natural are probably more devastating than others. For instance, in the natural realm, when you begin to talk about sin and think about sin, you go, okay, Murder is probably way worse than jealousy because murder impacts other people. It ended a life too early. So that one must be more severe than jealousy in the natural. The only problem is, is that according to Jim, he reminds us that in the supernatural, sin is sin. And all sin does the same exact thing, which is it creates separation between me and my Father. So in God's eyes, all sins are equal, just like all people are equal. And it doesn't matter if you steal, it's a sin. It doesn't matter if you lie, it's a sin. It doesn't matter if it's murder, it's a sin. It doesn't matter if you commit adultery, it's a sin. And in His eyes, they all create the same exact end result, which is separation because all sin destroys and all sin produces death and so James or Jim says there's no class system quit walking around puffed up going well I didn't sin as bad as they did if you sinned yes you did now, that's good preaching right there we draw a line and say man I we're, we're like the 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 publican uh, that that Jesus can count or talks about that walks in and say I'm I'm a sinner God but I'm not as bad a sinner as that sinner because man they're a bad sinner I mean they 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 did them all the seven deadly ones they did them all and all I did was tell one little white lie and so I'm so and Jesus is saying no 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 you're all exactly equal if you sin it's sin so if you've ever made this statement, listen to this statement. I know some of you have made this statement because I, I think I've probably said this in my life and I've recognized that at that moment I tattle on myself because I told you last week our tongue tattles on us. If you've ever made this statement, I can do what I want to do 
because it doesn't hurt, impact, or affect anyone but me. At that moment, you have created, whether you like to admit it or not, at that instant you have created a class system for sin and you don't understand the supernatural implications and ramifications of sin and understand that your sin is just as vile, just as nasty, just as despicable as the worst sinner that you can think of. That's a hard statement to swallow because that means your sin stands on equal footing as the sin of Hitler. I didn't say it. Jim said that. There is no class system for sin. We have to understand that righteous living, sinless living is an all or nothing deal. According to Jim, you either live all for God or you live none for God. There's no middle ground. Some of you need to get off the fence. Some of you need to quit hanging out in the middle and go, I can play on this side of the fence and play on that side of the fence. No, this is an all or nothing deal. Make up your mind because James has already told us that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Some of you are waffling back and forth and you find an instability in your life. Make up your mind get off the fence and live all for God or none for God we either keep it all or we keep none he goes on and he says this in James chapter 2 verse 12 speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful mercy triumphs over judgment and then I like what the Message Bible says. It says, for if you refuse to act kindly, you can hardly expect it to be treated kindly. Kind mercy wins over a harsh judgment every time. So according to Jim, we should judge. Now listen, that's an important statement. I'm going to come back to it. According to Jim, we should judge, but differently. All right, let me explain. There's this lie that has been told in our society that has invaded our lives and it is invading the church. And that is this lie or this cry for tolerance. Uh, Y'all ain't hearing me. We have believed this statement and this lie that we should not judge. In fact, I've had people look me square in the eyes and they try to quote scripture to me and they say, well, the Bible says, judge not that you be not judged. So that means we should never judge. If that is the statement that you made, then you don't understand the Bible. Because the Bible clearly teaches us that we should judge. In fact, there's a whole book named after people who did just that, judged. Judges. In fact, the Bible teaches very specifically and very clearly that we are to be people, and, and Jim reiterates this, we are to be people who know how to judge, how to discern, how to weigh in the balance, how to examine, examine people's fruit and make a judgment call on whether they're living right or living wrong. So if you want to declare to me that we're not supposed to be judges, you're wrong. You've believed the lie. Because at the moment that you don't think we should judge, you've become tolerant of sin. So Jim comes along and he says, you know what? Judge, but judge with a tendency towards mercy. That's a different mindset. 
legalism determines and dictates that you judge and it's the letter of the law and once you transgress, I will throw you away, I'll chastise you, I will punish you, and I will break off relationship with you and have nothing to do with you. And Jim is saying that doesn't work and we know that doesn't work. And so what he's saying is, yes, judge. When I look at you and when I relate with you and when I deal with people in the street, I am obligated. I have a, a, a spiritual obligation to judge the fruit of their life. But I do so with mercy. That's that whole quandary of loving the sinner. But I hate the sin. He says... The same level of mercy that you judge with will be doled back to you. Oh, I don't like that. Because if I judge too harshly, then what's going to happen is one of these days, that same harsh judgment is going to be put back on me. And so we've got to check ourselves and judge, but judge differently. I want to make a statement to you, and I want to drive it home. Try to. We've got to learn to operate this way as a body. We have to operate this way when we're dealing with the world outside. We've got to become what I'm getting ready to say. So listen carefully. I want us to be a group of individuals in a body that know how to judge, but with mercy. And so here's the statement. Learn to give people the benefit of doubt. I am fed up to hear. I wish I was taller. I'm fed up as high, higher than I can reach with this idea of, of living and behaving with suspicion. I'm tired of people that always believe the worst in every situation. I'm tired of that. That's Jim is saying, you cannot live like that. We believe the worst about everybody. We hear a little trickle of a rumor and we jump to the worst conclusion possible and we rest there without ever getting any facts. And so we think the worst about people, we got to change that. We need to believe the best about people. I want you to live your life thinking that the people that you're relating to and that you're dealing with believe the best about them until they prove otherwise. See, the problem with living like that is that we become these people who expect people to hurt us. We expect people to stab us in the back. We expect people to be terrible. We expect even the saints that we're relating to in the body, we expect them to even, even because of the way that we live like that, we expect even them to be vile sinners. We don't trust anybody. And so what happens is two things. We won't get close to anybody. And the second thing is this. When we live like that, people always live up to our expectations. We've got to become people of mercy and give people the benefit of the doubt. When you hear something bad about me, you should give me the benefit of the doubt and come find out if it's true. 
when I hear the worst about you, I shouldn't, I shouldn't just go, oh, yeah, they're the worst. I should go to them, set them down, talk to them, find out if it's true. That's how we're supposed to behave. Let me, let me make this statement to you. I believe this is true. I, I, can't, I tried to think back, and I think this is a reality. Every person that I've ever met that expected to be hurt and expected to be lied, lied about and expected to be mis, misused and abused was. They were. Because they go looking for it in every relationship. They were hurt one time, so now they expect to be hurt every time. They were stabbed in the back one time, and so now they expect to be stabbed in the back every time. They were misused by a preacher in one church, so now they come to this church and they expect to be misused by this preacher. They go to somebody, and, and in that body, the, con- the congregation were, were rumor mills and gossips and talked about one another and back by. So now they come to this body and expect the same thing because everywhere they go, they project their expectations on that situation. And Jim says, you know what? Mercy should rule the day. Judge, but judge with the lens and through the lens of mercy. Can I remind you that those of us who have been greatly forgiven should be people that are greatly merciful. That's how we should live our life. I should be a merciful person because I recognize and realize that I've been forgiven so much. So here's how this works practically. Sinners should feel comfortable around us because they know they're loved. They should not feel comfortable with their sin. I I, I started thinking about this. Sinners were very comfortable around Jesus. That freaks me out because he's the holy of holies. He's the one that that we know if you go and do research into the Old Testament, you know that he is God and that God cannot stand the presence of sin and he casts sin out of heaven and he wants nothing to do with sin and he's harsh about sin. And at the same time, sinners love to hang out with him. Sinners were so comfortable with Jesus, but when they got in the presence of Jesus, they were no longer comfortable with their sin. That speaks to us as a body. That people ought to be able to walk into this building, the vilest, the nastiest sinner, doing the most despicable things in the world. And they ought to be able to come out in, and come into our body and come into relationship with us and love hanging out with us. Those are the coolest people in the world. I love hanging. I love playing softball with them. I love playing cornhole with them. I love singing songs. With, I love drinking coffee with them. But something happens. I don't quite understand. I, I walk away from being with them and... I'm no longer comfortable with my homosexuality. I'm no longer comfortable with my alcoholism. I'm no longer, I don't understand. I used to love my drug abuse, but now I just can't get, I used to love the the adulterous relationship I was in, but now something happens after I spend a Sunday with them, after I spend an hour playing cornhole with them, I want to give up my cigarettes. I want to give up my, my promiscuity. I want to, but I love them. 
problem in the church has been is that what happens in most situations is what they do is when they come and hang out with us, they're uncomfortable with their sin, but they're so uncomfortable with us that they break off relationship. And what Jim is teaching us is that they should be so comfortable with us that they love us and they want to spend more time with us and then they suddenly recognize the way I've been living my life is not like that person and it's causing a, 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 break, a separation but it doesn't break my relationship so I'm going to change whatever I have to change because I want to be with them. Judge, but judge differently. James goes on. It gets kind of long-winded in a section, Jim chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is, who is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you not do you, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? What was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Message Bible. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I love the Message Bible. I'm sorry. I love it because it gets right down to the meat. Isn't that nonsense wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners that faith expresses itself in works that the works are works of faith the full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence Abraham believed God and was set right with God includes his actions it's that mesh of believing and acting that God named or that got Abraham named God's friend, is it not evident that a person is made right with God not by barren faith, but by faithful, fruitful, by faith, fruitful in works? So according to Jim, catch this, faith and works are married, and they can never be divorced. See, here's the truth. Catch this. We do not work to be saved. Because we can never be saved by our works. If you don't believe that, go back in the Old Testament and read of all the attempts to win salvation and they could never win salvation by their works. 
you will never win your salvation by your works. See, some of us reveal the importance of and the status of our faith in our lives. I can tell how seriously you take your faith by how you work. Your deeds reveal, just as your tongue tattles on the condition of your heart, your deeds tattle on your level of faith and the status of your faith in your life. Some of us show the importance and the status of our faith by the excess of our works, and some of us show the importance and the status of our faith by the lack of our works. There's a plague that has trapped many of us in the body of Christ. It's called the plague of performance. We perform hoping to earn God's love to be accepted by God, to earn our salvation. I want you to understand that there is nothing you can do to cause God to love you any more than He already does. If you never ush, if you never greet, if you never work in the nursery, if you never do outreach, God will not love you any less. But we should ush and we should greet and we should work in the nursery and we should do outreach. Because he loves us so much. We work because we love him. That's why we work. How do your works reflect on your faith? The Bible, Jim says that because of Abraham's works, it was credited to him as righteousness. My question for you this morning is what are you doing for God? that is being credited to you in your bank account of righteousness. What have you done for him lately? I wish I could sing. I'd break out in a song right now. I don't know. It's just this. What have you done for him lately that is he's writing a deposit slip and saying, mm-hmm, I credit them because of what they've done. It doesn't make you any more saved than you're already saved, but it reveals how important your faith is to him. How does your faith show up in your works? Are you working with the right attitude? Are you trying to do something so big that unless God intervenes, it will fail? What are you credited for? I'm afraid that there is this mentality that has invaded the lives of Christians and unfortunately, even this body. I'm going to get real practical with you here. I'm going to talk about us for a minute. You'll have to figure out where you fall in this. I know what happens here. I've seen it happen other places. We're not alone. Are you ready for it? There's this mentality that has invaded our body and in most of the bodies I've ever been a part of, and it's the something for nothing mentality. I'll come to church, and I want something for nothing. Do you know what an oxymoron is? It's not a stupid person that uses facial cleansing, all right? That's not it. An oxymoron is two words that are placed together that don't fit. They don't belong with one another, like jumbo shrimp. Those two words should never be used in the same sentence, but it's an oxymoron. There is an oxymoron that has been birthed in the body of Christ that should these two words should never go together. They should never be used in the same sentence, and yet in our body, 
And in most of the bodies I've ever been a part of, I see it. You ready for this oxymoron? Lazy Christian. Those words should never be uttered in the same sentence. And yet we have allowed consumerism and laziness to so invade our lives that we will actually attend church, we will sit back, we will soak up, we will drain resources, we will demand services, demand programs, and give absolutely nothing in return. We wouldn't even do that at a restaurant. Service can be terrible, the food can be cold, and we'll still place a tip on the table because that's expected of us. But we'll come to church and we won't help nobody. We won't get off of our rear and do nothing. There's a piece of trash on the floor. That's not my job. I don't come to church for that. You don't offer the services and the programs that I demand. Oh, don't worry about the fact that I don't tithe. I'm barely there. You can't count on me. I don't serve in any capacity. I just want to be a parasite. You know what a parasite is? It lives on the host and gives nothing back. It drains. Now, I I wish I could be mean enough. We probably ought to operate this way, but we don't. I wish I could be mean enough that if you don't tithe and you don't serve and you don't attend faithfully, that when you're in trouble and you call me, I go, sorry, you're on your own. We're just not built that way. We will come to your hospital bed. We will pray for you. We will try to help you. But I'm telling you that according to Jim, that that is the wrong way to live. That at the moment that happens, the moment you come here week after week, week after week, week after week, month after month, month after month, and we're struggling for individuals in any any ministry, and you've got those skills, and you've got those abilities, and you refuse to serve, parasite, bloodsucker. Let me call you a tick. I'm just not that mean. Judging with mercy, giving you the benefit of the doubt. You had a bad week, had a bad year, had a bad three years. I don't know. Talk is cheap. We are a lot better at verbalizing our faith faith than we are at practicing. Oh, that was a powerful statement. We are a lot better at talking church talk than we are of actually putting flesh on our faith. And Jim tells us this statement. This is a powerful statement. He says, even demons have faith. Oh, y'all didn't catch that. He said, even demons believe that there's a God. Even the demons have faith. The, The difference between us and them is that they don't act on their faith. That's what separates us is that we should understand that, yes, we can say there is a God all we want. We're no better than demons at that point. It's at the point that we get off our chair and start serving God with everything in us. We give our talents. We give our time. We give our treasure. We give our ability. We do everything within our power to to marry faith and works. At that moment, it separates us. We reveal our faith by our works. See, the root of our salvation is faith. Catch this statement. The root of our salvation is faith. The fruit of our salvation is works. There's a story, and then I'll be done. There's a story about a famous tightrope walker. 
his last name was Blondin. His family was into tightrope walking. They did that. That's how they made their living. And for a publicity stunt one time, he decided to stretch a tight wire across Niagara Falls and on the appointed day, he began to advertise it. And on the appointed day, he shows up and he stretches this wire and he gets out there and he crosses from the Canadian side back to the American side. Then he walks from the American side back to the uh, Canadian side. And thousands of people show up to watch him do this. And he's being to walk across. He got to the other side on one occasion and he changed it up a little bit. He said, this time I'm going to take a wheelbarrow and I'm going to fill it with dirt. And I'm going to walk across on this tightrope. Is there anybody here thinks that I can do it? And they all, yeah, they'd seen him nine, ten times already walk back and forth. You can do it. You can do it. So he crosses hour. I guess it probably took him an hour or more. He inches inch by inch to the other side. He gets over there and he shouts to the ground, I'm going to do it again. Do you believe? Yes, you can do it. And he gets back on the tightrope and he goes across. And as he finishes the second time, he's pushing that wheelbarrow full of dirt. And he walks by a tourist and the tourist says to him, I believe you could do that all day. And Blondin says, really? The guy says, oh, yeah, you can do it all day. Blondin dumps the dirt out and says, then get in. That is the perfect marriage of faith and works. It's not enough just to say, I believe in God. At the moment that you say, I believe in God, and you marry it to how I live my life, and I'm a servant, and I serve, and I work, and I give, and I show forth His excellencies in how I live my life and how I'm the hard. Jim is saying you should be the hardest worker at your job. Jim is saying that you should be the most faithful employee in your job. Jim is saying you ought to be a hard worker at church. Jim is saying that we should come to this place where we attack poverty, where we attack hunger, where we attack the injustices of the world, where we do something to better our communities. He's saying unless you're doing that, your faith means nothing. Some of us have talked about our faith for so long we've forgotten how to act on our faith. You need to understand that our faith is not determined by what we do. It is demonstrated by what we do. And some of you talk good church talk, but I can't get you to serve in here or anywhere else. And at that moment, you show who you really are. God help us to get busy. I don't want no more lazy Christians serving. Father, your word is sharp. In fact, your word teaches us about your word that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can cut asunder. It can go into the depths of who we are and our misconceptions about ourselves and about you and about your word, and it can lay those things bare and force us, force us to come to grips with who we really are. And so this morning, I pray that that would take place. I pray that if we are guilty of any kind of prejudice, that's a tough prayer to pray. If we are guilty of any kind of prejudice, race, 
economic, social, gender. Convict us this morning. Convict us this morning. God, you're hearing a guy pray that prayer that was whose grandmother honestly believed that the only good ending was a dead ending. That's not who I am. That's not who my kids will be. That's not who this church will be. I pray that we would open not only our doors, but we would open our hearts to every color, every creed. And they would come in here and they would become so comfortable with us, but they would become so uncomfortable with their sin that they begin to change. And although their sin, we know their sin separates them from you, I pray that it would not separate them from us. We would judge, but we would judge with mercy. And we would love them into your kingdom. We would be like Jesus. Even prostitutes would love to hang out with us. Let it be, oh God. Father, I pray we wouldn't create a class system for sin in our lives. I pray that we would not try to justify any kind of sin. We would recognize the truth of the day and that is that sin is sin and it separates us from you and so we would be deadly intolerant of sin in our lives. God, I pray that you would challenge each and every individual setting in this place that their faith would begin to match up with their works and their works would begin to match up with their faith and that they would become servants in every area of their life. They, at work, they would be known as the individual that will do the job right and will go above and beyond anything expected, not for extra pay. They will never utter these words out of their mouth. That's not my job. I pray we would never say those words in our place of employment or at this church or in our community. Instead, what would come out of our mouth is, God loves me so much that I feel obligated and compelled to serve in any capacity. I will go above and beyond what's expected of me because I represent the one who went above and beyond what I could ever expect of him. And so my works are elevated to the level of my faith. And my faith is revealed by my works. Father, if there's an individual setting on talents and gifts in this body that has not used them and refuses to use them, stir them up, I pray, in the name of Jesus right now. Help us to weed out the laziness of our own lives, the consumerism that has invaded our own lives and allow us to become givers and not takers. I pray that in Jesus. Father, if there's one in this room that does not know you, I pray that 
they would be so comfortable here but not comfortable with their sin and they would want to make a change. I pray that that would happen right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed before we leave this morning. Is there one that would say, Steve, you know what? I love being here, but the reality is I, I recognize there's sin in my life and I'm uncomfortable with that sin and I want to make sure that everything is right between me and God. I don't want any separation between me and God and sin separates me. And so I long to get close to Him and to know Him better. If that's you, if there's sin in your life and you want to get rid of it, I promise we won't embarrass you. We don't want to make you uncomfortable. We want to love on you. If you're here and that's you, would you just lift a hand and pull it back down? There's one. Anybody else that would be brave enough this morning to say, I need to make relationship right with my Father. This is how we do it. We do it together because we're all in this together. And my sin is just as vile as your sin. So would you take the hand of the person next to you and let's do this together. Would you pray this with me right now? Jesus, I ask you, forgive me of my sins. I want right relationship with you. Come into my heart. I make you the Lord of my entire life. You're my king. I trust the fact that you came to this earth. You died on a cross. You came back to life after three days so that I could have access to a relationship with the Father. I believe on that. So I give you my life. Thank you, Jesus. The Bible clearly states at the moment that we do that, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, we are saved. There's nothing magical about the prayer. It's the condition of our heart. So, Father, today, as a body, we thank you for right relationship. We may not feel any different now than we did 30 seconds ago. And so I'm thankful this morning that the condition of our heart is not based upon our feelings. It's based upon the formula of faith, which says I only have to believe what you said and what you did. Thank you that we, have, that we now have right standing with you. And I pray that that right standing would dictate that we live our lives differently and that we would show forth our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more Passion Resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion. 